0: Back. Welcome to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Lynn Elias, movie shark de Blore, uh, film critic, creator, host, moderator. I'm here, and so are all of you. Uh, again, I want to apologize to all of our faithful listeners who missed us last week. Um, as you can tell, I'm still slightly hoarse. Last week, there was no hoarse at all. Um, I went almost a week without being able to speak, which any of you out there that know me, know that that was undoubtedly a fate, almost worse than death. So we'll see if I can make it through today um, without coughing your ear off. We have plenty of water stocked up. I know my 1130 special guest, Sherry Sussman, if I go off on a a coughing jang, I know Sherry can talk for 15 minutes and I don't have to worry. Um, We do have a really fantastic show today. I am so thrilled with this post-Super Bowl Sunday uh, show, three incredible incredible guests. But before we talk about them, let's talk a little bit. I am very dismayed to say that my sound engineer, Brian, did not see the Captain America Civil War trailer that debuted during the Super Bowl yesterday. So I cannot ask him, is he Team Iron Man or Team Cap? Um, I have made my choice of being on Team Cap. Because let's be a rebel. Um, but wonderful entertainment yesterday. I know all the big buzz today is about the Super, the Super Bowl commercials. Uh, there were plenty of them. Very lackluster in comparison to other years. Also much lighter in tone than in other years. Uh, but there are some obviously obvious big winners. Uh, especially the Ant-Man Coca-Cola commercial. And of course... Helen Mirren, doing a PSA disguised as a commercial for Budweiser beer. One does not think of Helen Mirren as having a frosty cold one at the end of a hard day. But live and learn. Um, So here we are now today, as everybody is in the aftermath of the Super Bowl party glow. uh, Joining me today will be three incredible filmmakers, First up is going to be Greg Coase. Greg was scheduled to be with us last week, but due to me being ill and the show not going forward, he kindly rescheduled for today. I can't wait to talk to Greg. Uh, He is a documentarian. He has, I believe, 10 Emmys to his name already. Um, He has a new documentary that is out. It will be in theaters tomorrow, uh, going through the new... Basically, the tug kind of uh, theater scheduling where people can request that the film play in their local theater and X number tickets have to be sold. Um, The number of theaters that are going to be showing The Great Alone tomorrow is a staggering amount of films. And it is the the comeback story of Lance McKay, one of the greatest Iditarod champions of our time. And the documentary chronicles not only his life, but the 2013 Iditarod race. Uh, he, After he had won four Iditarods, and yes, it is the dog sled race, people. Those of you that aren't quite sure, yes, it is the 1,049-mile endurance race that takes place up in Alaska uh, every year. Um, it is an amazing story. Lance McKay is an amazing young man. Uh, His family is part of the Iditarod legacy. His father was one of the founders and a former champion. And one of the interesting things that we learn in this documentary is not so much about the race, but is why we race, why man races, why an individual races, and why we move forward. It's a very inspiring documentary. It is a very beautiful documentary. Shot up in those pristine uh, glacial outbacks of Alaska. So Greg will be here uh, in just in the first quarter hour, just a few minutes, to talk about the Great Alone. At eleven, at the half-hour mark, at 11:30, we're going to have Sherry Sussman, filmmaker extraordinaire. My pal Sherry is going to be. Uh, back with us again. Some of you who are regular listeners, you may recall Sherry has been with us before, talking about her short film, One Night in Hollywood, which is a teaser for the much-anticipated feature, One Week in Hollywood. And One Night in Hollywood is getting rave reviews, not only in the United States, but abroad. And this week will be showing at the Berlin Film Festival, and then for Everybody, all the Angelinos around that want to see a really hilarious film. Um, it is also part of, it's showing here in Los Angeles and Beverly Hills at the Lemley Music Hall on February 25th, I believe. I'm looking through my notes. I'm looking through my notes. Uh, yes, it is going to be on February 25th as part of the Hollywood Real Independent Fest. So Sherry's going to talk, uh, talk more about that when she joins us. And then a real treat for me, I've had the pleasure now of uh, speaking with Arturo Moishant several times. As you may recall, Arturo was here on Behind the Lens talking about his new film, The Pastor, which is currently out in theaters, Um. I, thereafter, spoke with him at length in a lovely one-on-one interview uh, that is out floating around there at various outlets in the U.S. right now. Today, joining us will be the director of the pastor and co-writer, Deborah Goodwin. Um, Deborah herself is an accomplished filmmaker. She is also a member of that incredible group called Film Fatals, uh, a Women's filmmaking group, uh, East Coast, West Coast, and everywhere in between. A great brunch of women, you've already heard in the past from Leah Meyerhoff, uh, from uh, Jen Prediger, from Jess Weixler. All these lovely ladies are part of Film Fatals. So, Deborah's going to be here to talk today about The Pastor and also about Film Fatals. Um, one film, I got to mention a couple things that are actually opening this week that I didn't have time to put together because of the jam packed in, uh, guest today. I didn't have time to pull out any sound bites or put together for you. So I thought I would just talk to you about them. The first film is Touched with Fire, which is out in theaters this Friday. It's written and directed by Paul Dalio. And it deals with two poets, uh, that suffer with, Bipolar disorder. It's an, This is an amazing film. Touch with Fire actually comes from the title of a book uh, and the steps and processes of what are known as the four seasons of the bipolar fire. Paul also has, a, he suffers with bipolar disorder. So this is very much a first hand experience in terms of the visual grammar that translate translates the emotions as well as the character construct with indelible performances by Katie Holmes, one of the best of her career, and Luke Kirby, as well as Griffin Dunn, Bruce Altman, and Christine Lottie. What is interesting about Touch with Fire is there is nothing here that is thrown in gratuitously. Everything has a purpose. Um, every character is developed. Parents are not relegated to the sidelines, crying, oh, woe is me, what I do with my child. Paul has written the script, designed, constructed the characters, and developed the visuals of the film so that the parents are on this heartbreaking journey with their children. And we see this unfolding. It truly immerses the audience, brings us into the story. Um... Fueling that and aiding in that are his visuals, which are just... He's got two, two cinematographers at play here. One is his wife, Christina Nikolova, and then Alexander Stanisher. The visuals capture the emotions, and to listen to the passion that Paul has, when he was describing to me um, his emotion when he was writing, when he was feeling the visuals and how he could articulate that on screen. It just it inspires. It touches the heart. It gives you a very deep understanding of the bipolar disorder and the people that, that suffer with it, that have to take meds, the families and loved ones that live with them. I can't encourage you all enough to see the movie Touched with Fire when it comes out this Friday. It is an absolute stunner. It encourages all to nurture the gift that bipolar disorder is not a disgrace. It's not a disease. It is actually, it is a gift. And if you nurture it and you treat it properly, some of the greatest artisans of our time uh, have have had bipolar disorder most notably Vincent Van Gogh, whose painting Starry Night plays a key role within the film itself. Um, Something that I found very striking, I talked to Paul about, was that also concurrently we're we're seeing on television now for the first time, General Hospital has an ongoing bipolar disorder storyline. It has been in the background for a number of years, but is now at the forefront with a 20-something young man who is trying to deal with that. Um, So to see this happen, to see this being portrayed on the small screen and the big screen at the same time right now, it's a huge step forward for filmmaking, for television, for storytelling. And when it's being presented and told as lovingly, as authentically, as we're seeing right now, uh, it can only do all of us good to watch, listen, and understand. So, Touch with Fire will be out on Friday. Uh, please go see it. It is an amazing, amazing film. Uh, also, an interesting documentary that HBO is actually going that is premiering on HBO, I believe, tomorrow night. Homegrown: The Counterterror Dilemma. Dilemma. It's from Greg Barker. Greg, you may recall won an Emmy for the incredible manhunt, The Search for Bin Laden, uh, a few years ago. This time he tackles the issue of self-radicalization here at home. And it's becoming more and more prevalent, uh, most recently because of the the shootings in San Bernardino. Uh, It's a very insightful and investigative piece of journalism that takes a look at... Families of those that have been uh, those of the Muslim faith that have been arrested uh, for believed terror connections, for believe, for uh, believed to be self-radicalized, breaks it all down, talks to people in te- counterterrorism organizations, um, really gives us an objective look from the ground from boots on the ground position within the United States as to how much a problem this is, what is being done about it, how people are reacting, how to understand it better, and how things really might not be as bad as a lot of people think they are. Um, that is on HBO. It is it is a fascinating uh, inside look into this ho- this aspect of homegrown terrorism. So those are two fabulous, fabulous things. Uh, to check out and I also interviewed Greg and that will be out hopefully on my website later this week uh, so you can hear excerpts of that and read all about that as well as my interview with Paul Dalio on Touch with uh, Fire. That will be up and out later this week in time for the film's release on Friday. So before uh, Greg calls us in a couple minutes, let's take a short break and then we'll be right back. Behind the Lens is sponsored in part by the Culver City Observer. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And welcome back to Behind the Lens. And joining me right now is the fabulous filmmaker, 10-time Emmy winner, Greg Coase. Hi, Greg. Welcome. Oh, Thank you very much. How are you doing today? I am fine. I can talk to you today. Yes, <laughs> awesome.
1: I'm glad you're feeling better.
0: Oh, my God. As I'm sure that Janelle probably told you, the day, when the day comes, I can't talk. It truly is catastrophic.
1: I was worried, but I'm, I'm glad to be speaking with you today.
0: Oh, I am thrilled to be speaking with you, Greg. I mean, this is an amazing Amazing documentary. I was enthralled from beginning to end. And so taken not just with the story, but your visuals. Just, it just shows us how beautiful our 49th state is.
1: Yeah, it really is something. It was a, um, it was, uh, it wasn't difficult to make uh, stunning images. (laughs) Just turn the camera on and point it. And uh, anywhere you looked, it was It
0: was breathtaking. So what is it? People have done stories about the Iditarod before, but they haven't done a story up close and personal and in-depth as you have about one particular participant, and in this case that being Lance Mackey. I mean, his record of four Iditarod wins in a row is just amazing. But how did, did... led you? What led you to Lance's story and gave you the impetus to want to tell it, especially the way you originally framed it with the 2013 race?
1: Yeah, well, I you know, I first met Lance in uh, 2008 while making a, a commercial for Nike Livestrong Foundation um, about uh, uh, cancer survivors and inspiring stories of athletes who had, who had survived cancer. And I met Lance and spent about Forty-eight hours with him in, in Fairbanks to tell that story, and in that time it was just for a sixty-second commercial. But in that time, I I, I kind of gleaned that there was much more to Lance than um, and I don't mean this lightly than his his battle and in and uh, survival of cancer, and I, I felt like there were other threads and other storylines to Lance that were compelling that I was very curious about, and so Lance and I began speaking after that that encounter, and uh, I set out to. You know, I told him that my mission was to tell his story in a feature length, you know, motion picture. But first, perhaps we start with a documentary because I knew I could get that made. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how it began. And it was, it really, it was really uh, born out of curiosity and something that had attracted me to his character and, and who he was. I really admired his honesty and his kind of real as dirt nature. You know, he's, he just says it like it is.
0: And, that's and so a- by the
1: time everything came together, it was 2013. And that's when we set out to make the film.
0: And that's something that really comes across is Lance is very much, you know, he calls it like he sees it, you know, warts and all. Um, he holds nothing back. There is great honesty, great, t- great truth um, that comes with Lance. And that I find very surprising. The trappings of somebody, you know, most award winners, a lot of them, especially you know, they they want to ride the gravy train. This isn't about the gravy train for Lance. This is about his dogs, himself, and that relationship.
1: Yeah, it, it really is. You know, he's, um, you know, and he didn't know that at first, and that's kind of what was so wonderful about telling his story and getting to know him better and know his story better and then to be able to share it was, you know, he... He, he he rebelled against dogs a little bit because it represented you know an identity he didn't think was his or didn't want to be his and mm-hmm. then realized that it really was his so um, and came back to the dogs so uh, and uh, as he says in the film he's, he's he's more comfortable with with dogs than humans and I think that really comes through in his uh, in, in our encounter with him
0: oh there is there's is no doubt about that you just see one or two frames of him with his dogs and you just fall in love because you see the, the mutual love between the two. You see how he cares for them, how he worries about them in the midst of a race. It is truly something to behold. And I think that speaks more about the man than anything else.
1: Yeah. He, he, um, he like a lot of mushers or most mushers, you know, to give credit to the, the mushers I was exposed to on the editor, trail, which is pretty much all of them. They, they put their dogs first. They get into a checkpoint after hours of sleeplessness, um, days of sleeplessness for themselves. And they get there and the first thing they do is they, they bed their dogs down. They care for their dogs. They feed their dogs. They cook for their dogs before they even take care of themselves. And some, you know, not everyone's the same, but that's, that's definitely Lance and that's who he is. And he, he puts his dogs first, um, just like most parents put their kids first. Mm-hmm. So, um, and he, and that's no surprise that he calls his dogs his kids. So it was really something special to, uh, to witness and to be able to capture.
0: Now, as a documentarian, how do you go about approaching a story like Lance's to develop and, and plan out where you think the story is going to go? Because I know that you were hoping for one thing with the 2013 race, and, you know, as, as karma has it, as the universe dictates, things don't always go the way we hope them to go. And how does that affect you as a filmmaker and a storyteller in terms of your shooting, your editing, and developing the story that eventually does unfold?
1: Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. You know, it, setting out to make Lance's story, I, I knew, you know, we knew um, that we had a film without even shooting a frame of film, but there was a compelling three-act amazing story there with his... His wins, his victories, his four victories in a row in the Iditarod, and also another thousand-mile race, the Yukon Quest, which he won four years in a row, um, and two of those years in the same year, which was unheard of. But we knew that going in. So our approach uh, going in, or uh, what I was most interested in, is I had seen a lot of videos on the Iditarod, like like you had mentioned, you had it as well, um, on DVD and on television. But I'd never, I'd never really seen an intimate portrait of a musher on the trail just, and, and I was really in, that was, I was really curious about that. And that was my goal setting out. I, it wasn't about the race when we covered the race, though we covered it. You know, I have a background at NFL film, so I'm very used to telling the story of super bowls and championship games and seasons. But in this case, it was just to tell the intimate portrait of a musher on the trail to see him in places. No one sees the musher, you know, um, and to get to those places. And, um, in the end, we narratively framed it as a race. But I have to tell you, in the beginning I kind of anticipated just cutting interesting artful moments with him on the trail, not knowing where he was on the trail for the viewer, just to show what it's like. And then as it turned out we, we, we carved it into a narrative of the race, which worked out well. So
0: And I mean and, and what I really enjoyed and appreciated as I'm watching this unfold, once as you're giving us the little mile markers you know, Uh in the upper left-hand corner. So we know where he is along the race, the way you've structured it with old family films, photographs, interviews with his parents, his brother. um, You feel like you're going through the mile markers of his life as well.
1: Yeah. And, and I, I guess that's, it's yeah, exactly. And it, and, um, I wish I could say, "Wow, I knew that was going to happen." I was—I saw that ahead of time in my treatment for how I was going to approach the race. But it, um, as we cut his 2013 race together, the narrative—the kind of the narrative arc of his race—paralleled the narrative narrative arc of his life so kind of seamlessly that it's true. These mile markers are really mile markers and mileposts of his life, mm-hmm. and um, the tone and the the temperature, attitude, and and his disposition at those different mile markers in the race kind of mirrored his life, you know, the moments in his life. So it was it actually came together quite beautifully. It was a mind meld trying to figure it out in the edit, of course, but we uh, we were able to figure it out, and I'm, I'm glad that we did. We had a very talented team working on it. So
0: now, what were the logistics like in actually shooting the Iditarod itself? That 2013 race. How much of the, how much of the race did you follow along? At were you overhead in a chopper? Run, you know, because some of those areas they're very difficult to get to. Obviously, you're not going to go in there with a the camera crew.
1: Yeah, they are they are challenging to get to, and those were the areas. Um, you know, my, my wife was pretty ticked off at me when I was saying these are the areas I want to go that no one's gone to before, few have, um, because they're either dangerous or so remote, what have you, or unknown. But. Um, yeah, I did a lot of research ahead of time. There was a, a wonderful photographer that's covered the race for many, many years named Jeff Schultz, who was kind enough to share his portfolio of photographs. And I went from checkpoint to checkpoint, all thousand miles of the race, and kind of studied a lot of his still photography, which I, is just absolutely stunning and beautiful. And um, it gave me, it was almost like a location scout. It gave me a really good indication of angles, um, light, and uh, terrain. And, uh, and then, you know, the, the challenge was then in having discussions with some of the people that cover the race frequently saying, wow, I really loved that, that visual you shot, um, in the gorge. How, where is that? Well, it's right past that stump and there's a down tree and there's a big rock. And so it was very, you know, their directions were very homemade and homespun to be able to locate the stuff. But, um, that's how it was. I conducted the the pre-production and the scouting. And then we covered the race with a very small crew. There were five of us total that traveled to Alaska, and uh, actually three of us. And then we had two local crew in Alaska, and we split up. There was a three-man crew and a two-man crew, and one was in a helicopter. That was myself, a pilot, and the, uh, my DP in a very small helicopter. And then we had a fixed-wing plane that would, uh, and we checkerboarded, kind of. The fixed-wing plane was our support. It would drop us batteries, um, food, gasoline for the helicopter and so forth, the different wave po- wave, uh, different markers, and mm-hmm. then we would uh, communicate through satellite phones when they worked. It was quite challenging. And we never filmed from the helicopter. We called the helicopter our flying snow machine, because um, originally we wanted to cover the race on snowmobiles or snow machines. You call them snowmobiles, I guess I learned that if you live in the lower 48, they're snowmobiles, but if you're mm-hmm. in the know and live in Alaska, they're snow machines. So... Um, we wanted to cover the snow machines, and they thought oh, we were crazy. All the guides said, you're nuts. You'll never make it. They'll break, they'll break down, and you really need to uh, fly. And so we, we uh, were able to put the resources together for a very small helicopter, and we never filmed from it. It was only used for transportation to get us into those tricky spots wow. that a plane actually couldn't land in, only a helicopter, which worked out wonderfully. I
0: mean, the footage is absolutely stunning, especially when you're up on the frozen tundra, And just going across ice and snow, and you've got the wind picking up. The imagery is just, it is breathtaking. Absolutely breathtaking. And you really feel, you really put the audience into the moment with Lance. You feel that alone time that he has with his dogs and nature.
1: Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you felt that because, um, that was our goal and our mission going in is we wanted people to feel, you know, we wanted them to feel goosebumps, not just from the emotion of the story, which there's plenty of, um, but also, you know, the conditions. And, uh, and we felt the goosebumps in the conditions, I might add. But, um, you know, that was, we knew we were going to encounter some amazing visuals and we really worked hard to, to, we, we shot the film with two area Alexa cameras and that was really important to us that I wanted that capture uh, device and that sensor to um to capture the details and the snow and the texture of the ice and the ice forms and, and, and so forth. So it was um it was quite a treat to be able to uh to have Alaska as our backdrop when telling this very it's a very epic environment for a very intimate story. And that was uh we're we're very blessed to have that opportunity.
0: Oh, I mean, it, it just, on every level, it works beautifully, Greg. But one element of the film that is so key and so often overlooked in a documentary, the music that you have, at times it's very haunting, at times it's it has a whimsical tone to it with, with just simple piano keys. How challenging was it for you to find that right musical backdrop?
1: Um, you know, I... I had figured out the musical backdrop before I even—I I knew who I would wanted to write the score before I even set out making the film. I'd, I've always been a big fan of this band called Cloud Cult, who are based out of Minneapolis and actually live on a farm just across the border in, in Wisconsin. And uh, Craig Manoa is a uh, is the lead singer, and it's his band. And their name's Cloud Cult, and I, I've always loved their music. Um, it's just it, it can be haunting. And it can, uh, it can get you pumped up and much, you know, make you want to run through your living room wall. It's just, it's beautiful. And more than anything, he's, he's an amazing storyteller. And, um, so I shared a rough cut with Craig, um, uh, once we had one and he, he was able to feel the story and, uh, and the threads in it. Some of them he really related to and he was, he said, Greg, I'm all in. I want to write this score. So, um, uh that's, that's how we arrived at it. And we were just, it was beautiful. I mean, he kind of used Lance's dialogue He uses the dialogue track so wonderfully. It's it's like it's lyrics. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Craig's a very, very talented musician and scorer and, and writer and just a, a wonderful human being. So I, I think he's going on tour. So I, a little plug for C- Cloud Called. I would encourage everyone to check him out. Oh, it's really I, well, amazing.
0: Something else everybody can check out tomorrow is The Great Alone. Is in theaters tomorrow.
1: It is. We have our, our uh, world premiere theatrical events beginning tomorrow, the 9th, and then they'll go throughout the uh, throughout the rest of the month, and then they'll continue on um, as fans request the film to come to their town so and, theatrically.
0: And this is a great uh, distribution platform. And I've been talking to a lot of directors that this is being implemented in. People fans can go to your website, thegreatalone.com. They can request that the film be shown in their city. And then after X tickets are sold because there's a threshold, the film will be there.
1: Yeah, it's fantastic, especially for a, you know, a documentary. And while people just assume, well, it's won so many awards and, and what have you and got you know, a, a lot of acclaim or what have you, a lot of attention and love, they just assume that it will have a theatrical run. And that's not always the case. It's rarely the case. <laughs> um small independent film. So this model, uh, Tug and, and working with Theatricast is is really fantastic, especially for the great alone, being able to get it to the fans that want to see it. And to have the option of just basically clicking, Hey, I want to host the screening, click on the button, pick your city, pick your theater, and not just uh you know, not the basement of a church. I mean you're talking about an AMC or a landmark or a big oh, yeah. theater a big screen.
0: You know, right and host now. it. I'm just very upset that not enough people in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, wanted to go see this.
1: Uh-huh. I know. I think uh, Cherry Hill, New Jersey, just across the across the river, poached from that screening. Yeah. So that is, you have a uh, affinity for uh, King of
0: Prussia? Uh, born and bred in Plymouth meeting right outside Philly. Uh-huh. All right. My mother well, lived at the King of Prussia Plaza. Oh, nice. Well, you know,
1: you have the option to host a screening yourself.
0: So. yes well I'm here in, in Culver City right now but of course Burbank also fell short out here so I may have to do something about this
1: yeah well you know we went it, it was kind of fun we went with a heat map that the you know tug and theatric has put together from all the like 800 requests for the film and we uh, we seeded these screenings in the uh, in the cities that spoke the loudest or barked the loudest no pun intended and um and some were able to achieve the threshold and others came close but it's not over it's still able to come back to that city and so we're still working at it spreading the word well we appreciate the love you're giving the film and helping us
0: do that oh I, I am just i am a huge fan of your work anyway greg um a huge fan of all the nfl stuff that you've done over the years so to see this is just fabulous i can't thank you enough for joining me today this has been, oh, it's ab- been a
1: pleasure thanks so
0: much an absolute delight greg so for everybody the Great Alone, go to thegreatalone.com. You can get you can host the screening in your town. Otherwise, there are plenty of them tomorrow night that are all tickets are still available around the country.
1: That's right. Buy your tickets online. It's the only place you can get them.
0: Oh, Greg, thank you so much. And I hope you will come back to the show again.
1: I'd love to. Thank you
0: very much. Oh, thanks. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. That was Greg Coast. I'm at The Great Alone. And now, there she is, the always patient and wonderful Sherry Sussman.
2: Hi, Debbie. How are you?
0: Hey, you. I'm fine. How are you doing? We're doing great. Thanks for having us back. Oh, my God. Of course. You know how much I love this short film and the whole premise for what it teases, which will be one week in Hollywood. But right now, one night in Hollywood is going to Berlin.
2: We are we're gonna be at the Berlin Independent Film Festival. it's a Friday actually this Friday, February twelfth for anybody listening that's happened to be in Berlin right now and um it's at eight o'clock at the Babylon theater, which is super cool. It's a old classic legendary theater there, so we're we're real excited and um our producer and actor Marcus Ryman and our composer Nicholas Meedhardt are actually both from Germany and they're gonna be there so Definitely, if you're
0: there, tell them them I said hi. (laughs) Well, and right now, I know some filmmakers in Berlin. I think Kelly McClung, I think Kelly may be on his way over there right now. I know a makeup artist, Nadia, just moved to Berlin and is going to the Berlin Festival. So I am personally telling them, get thee to the theater to see this film. Thank you so much. Because it is fabulous. Now, for those lovely listeners who have not heard you and I talk about One Night in Hollywood before, and the fabulous Ian Buchanan, who steals the show, um, why don't you give everybody a rundown of what One Night in Hollywood is?
2: Okay. Yeah, we were so lucky to have Ian Buchanan. He's a friend of our executive producer, Francesca von Habsburg, and he just happened to call Ian and said, um, call this person and go do this film. And he goes, of course, of course. That's a bad imitation, so I hope he's not going to listen to this. But, um, oh uh, yeah, he was great. So One Night in Hollywood is actually, it, it's a teaser and a short film within itself, but we started out doing a feature called One Week in Hollywood, which is just a satire, sort of the fringe side of the player, about two filmmakers trying to raise money for an indie film. So, in essence, we're pretty much living our script and we basically were running around looking for money for about a year or so and then decided to shoot a short film to try to give everybody a taste of the tone and the actors we have attached. And it's a different plot, but it's actual dialogue from the feature. So um, I've done shorts before and had some good luck. So One Night in Hollywood basically about two uh, filmmakers who think they have the perfect investor and he just wants them to kill a... Studio VP and he'll give them a half a million dollars. And um, basically our tagline is oddly enough that that's not their biggest problem. So it kind of goes from there.
0: <laughs> well, and one of the great things is and I he's coming back for the feature, Jeffrey Norvit, your DP?
2: Yes. Jeff Jeff is actually he was an A camera operator for years in the business, shot phone booth and um, he did Punch Drunk Love. Yeah. he goes back. I don't want to date him like myself, but he did the Karate Kid and old film um, TV shows like L.A. Law. Mm-hmm. So he's um, Jeff. He all all my
0: indie films. Oh, uh, Jeff is amazing. And you know, when people see One Night in Hollywood, you know the, the color, the saturation, the lensing, the lighting. This is not some you know little short film. It looks like a low-budget, no-budget. This is high-polish, high-gloss, really gorgeous, short film.
2: Uh, thank you, Debbie. Um, basically, uh, you know, Marcus and I, we you know, who produced this with me, we just called in all our favors of, you know, you find in Hollywood, it really is a friendly town. People like to work, and they want to work, and... Um, we did do it on a pretty low no budget. We only used about 11000 cash, which is, you know, it's a little higher than other shorts, but lower for what, you know, our production value was. We were really lucky. We had a Technicolor uh, friend of mine, Marcy Jastrow's, uh senior VP over there, who's helped me with all my films throughout the years, and uh, Chris Wagley did our color timing at Technicolor, so we were super lucky, and of course, Jeff, my DP, came in for free, and we, we just got really lucky with um, really great people and good, you know, production services. And, um, yeah, it'd be, it's fun, like, doing indie films when you're in L.A. I think people have a misconception, you know, but people really will come and jump on board.
0: Oh, and I've seen, you know, I've seen that with some of the stuff that I've produced. And people are always willing to jump on board. And it's even nicer when they want to jump on board for free. Um, but don't get any ideas out there, people. Je- you cannot get Jeffrey Norvid for free. You will? No, pay. no, I mean, yeah, you're right, he'll you, kill me. I you absolutely. will. You for free. will. I mean, we always
2: pay them something, <laughs> you know, I take that back. Thank you, he'll kill me. He, you know, what's funny is I actually always do pay him, even if you give guys, you know, a few hundred dollars or three to five hundred, but the guys I've been fortunate enough to work with, also Augie Hess, who edited, um, was William Freakin's editor on 12 Angry Men for HBO and Rules of Engagement and... Um I, I always say it's no money because, to me, you know, what I pay them is no money to them because they all make, you know, the A-list uh, prices. So, yes, uh, free uh, to me is a few hundred dollars here and there.
0: Hey, you know, but uh, but for everybody in L.A. who likes to share in this filmmaking experience, I mean, this is really custom made for everybody in L.A., everybody in the film industry will really relate to the themes that you have going in the short in one night in Hollywood and for everybody local, they can trot on over to Beverly Hills to the Lemley music hall on February 25th to see this little gem.
2: Yeah, we were um, lucky to get into the Hollywood real independent film festival. So we're at six o'clock, February 25th at the, yeah, my favorite Lemley, Lemley theaters. I love. So we're at the music hall um, on Wilshire
0: in Beverly Hills. And we'll all be there. Even I'm going to be there. I'm Even I'm, I'm, I'm going to be there. You're going to be there? Oh, okay. Well, I'll have to get you a ticket. I'll buy my own ticket. <laughs> this uh, is indie
2: Filmmakers. We uh, have to buy tickets for everybody we can.
0: No, that's okay. I'll buy my own ticket, you know. <laughs> no, bar, barring a catastrophe, I will absolutely be there. And that's a great weekend, too, because the following day are the independent, the Film Independent Spirit Awards. And that Sunday is the Oscars.
2: Right. And actually, these two festivals, we, we're just so happy to be in, and they're both perfect for our film because they're literally independent film festivals, and that's what we are. We're just an independent film and trying to just have fun making a really fun commercial but sort of edgy indie film about indie filmmaking. So um, we're, we're pretty close, I think, to getting the money for the feature, hopefully, and uh then you know the short really really paid off for us and we totally appreciate your support too it's it's been great we've had a lot of great people supporting the film
0: well it's it's such a it's such a fun film and you know besides ian you have some great guys in there you got kyle kaminsky and rick peters who also join in the fun with marcus and ian and it is your casting is just ideal
2: Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I just love actors, so I always like to find people that have been around for a while and always like to have fun like Ian. You know, you just sort of let them come and play. And I mean, I think the most I directed Ian was uh, walk while you're doing the line of coke while you're walking out the door. I mean, that was it. You know, it was like, uh, do the line of coke while you're walking out to the patio there, Ian. That's it. And he goes, okay, okay. But, I mean, they're so great. And then Kyle Kaminsky's an up-and-coming actor that I was lucky to find through an agent I've known for 20 years. Uh, Maggie Abbott, who's a veteran agent in the business, she used to represent, like, Peter Sellers and incredible people. And she she said, you know, you must check out this guy. And, and I did, and I think he's got a great future. And uh, Rick Peters, of course, was on Dexter, and Maggie recommended Rick also. And they're all attached to the future, so... Uh, we're, we're super lucky.
0: Well, and, and I'm glad that they're all attached to the feature because as people will see when when they buy their tickets and go see One Night in Hollywood <laughs> on February 25th, the chemistry between these guys is so genuine and so authentic, especially to, if anybody knows anybody in the film industry, you are going to recognize people you know <laughs> in these characters.
2: Hopefully. I mean, it's funny because it's a satire, but even my sister, she she worked at Fox and Paramount for years, and she goes, oh, it's more like a documentary. I mean, it's, it's funny because the satire is just skewed a little bit to the left, but um, the the fun part of Hollywood is that it's just filled with characters, with people that you you just come to know and love and eccentric people and interesting people and um it, it really is it's it's meant to be a bit of a love letter to hollywood without sounding so corny but um the the things that people think are downsides i always think is just the best part of being you know a filmmaker meeting these type of people and then we just cast everybody with marcus marcus Reimann's a great german theater actor who's transitioning into american film and i i just think he's uh, dare I say, going to blow up here pretty soon. So I, I just wanted to jump on that bandwagon as a filmmaker. Well, know. and of
0: course, the more love you give him now, the better chance you have that even when he blows up and he's world famous, he'll still work on your projects.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I'm hoping he'll stick with me here a little bit, but, <laughs> you know, you know how actors are. Oh, no,
0: I know. Well, you know, the one big question that I have to ask you because of the premise of the film, and you know, the investor has one request to knock off a studio executive that you know <laughs> totally, you know, just aggravated him beyond belief. Um, where did you get that idea? You know, I really am. It came because Marcus Rick Peters and I were sitting
2: at the one-on-one coffee shop talking about. Uh, we were kind of stuck on getting the financing. We'd ask everybody we knew, and. And uh I said, well, maybe we should just shoot a short film just to work. And we really had no intention of doing this. We all just wanted to showcase the people we had. And Marcus really hadn't done a lot of American films. So, you know, at the end of the day, we all just want to work. And Rick Peters, for some reason, just said, all I see is Marcus and I bearing a body. And that's the beginning. And you see us bearing a body in a grave. And I don't know what else. And all of a sudden, it just came to me I because I wanted to tie the a feature script, which isn't that plot, but it's about, they go to pretty much any length to try to get the money for their film, but I thought wow, that, that was actually a, a great idea for a plot for the feature, is any lengths is, you know, killing somebody for the money and um, it just came from there so it, it was pretty fun, needless to say, and then the the joke of it is, if you see the short is, you can kill somebody and be promised the money and still not even get the money so but, um, <laughs> and
0: just, just so everybody knows, no studio executives were harmed in the making of this short film. <laughs> exactly,
2: <laughs> and I have nothing against studio executives. Trust me, I'm not that cynical. It was, it was just the it's a just for fun.
0: So, any other festivals coming up on this one, or, or Berlin and and Hollywood Reel? You know, that's it right at this moment.
2: That's it right at this moment and then we just have some really really great news to announce actually on your show um Ooh. where we just signed a deal with Shorts HD and Shorts International. They're one of the top uh, short film distributors. They they actually just represented all the Oscar nominees and did a huge uh theater showing in New York, and they've uh, just literally signed a full distribution deal with us. So we'll air on um, Shorts HD, which is on DirecTV in May, and Amazon Prime, iTunes, Amazon, uh, Vimeo on Demand, VOD. So um, we'll we'll have a bit of a long life with this, so we're we're really proud of that.
0: Oh, I am absolutely thrilled. You know I've wanted to see it get a distribution deal somewhere.
2: Yeah, thank you so much, Debbie, and we thank you, you know, for your support, and, and you know, we just shout out to, like, Melanie Marquez at M4PR and um, Gotham Channa and Dee Dee Morse. They're our publicists, which we got because, you know, nowadays short films are pretty competitive. There are so many and so many festivals, and um, we were fortunate, you know, to connect with people like you through, through them and... It's it's been a great run. We're we're just about wrapping up our you know festival year, and uh, but we'll definitely let you know if we get
0: in a few more. Oh my God! Because of course, when you do, you'll have to come back.
2: Absolutely, you're an easy interview. I'm sitting in my car, I'm actually in Hollywood, looking at the Hollywood sign. So,
0: <laughs> and you're sitting in a very good cell cell tower location, so you're not breaking up.
2: I know. I'm on the top of a parking structure across from Paramount Studios, I'll just shout out. And I'm looking at the Hollywood sign in front of me. So,
0: Okay, well, thank you so much, my friend, for joining me again today. I will see you on the 25th, and we will chat in between. And anybody in Berlin on Friday, get thee to the theater and see One Night in Hollywood.
2: Uh, thank you so much, Debbie, and we love Behind the Lens, and uh, I'm totally looking forward and excited you're coming to our screening. And anybody else who is, you know, in Hollywood or Berlin, Marcus will be in Berlin. Just go up and introduce yourself, and um, we'll be at Hollywood, so we'd love to meet anybody who wants to come
0: out. And so much thanks, Debbie. Big oh, thank you, and I will talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Sherry Sessman, One Night in Hollywood. And now we have the fabulous director and writer, Deborah Goodwin. Hi, Deborah. Hi, how are you? Oh, I'm so excited. I get to talk to another film fatal. More important. It's
3: so great. I really appreciate you having me on.
0: Oh, I am so absolutely delighted, especially after having Arturo on the show the other week and then talking to him about the film. The Pastor is an amazing film. Um, mm-hmm. it, it is so inspiring. It is so hopeful. And what you have done visually, and I know Arturo and I had talked about this, and he gave you full credit for the visual design because you really incorporate the ideals of good and evil within, yes. within the structure of mm-hmm. your visual grammar. Now, because you were, uh, you also co-wrote this with Arturo. Is this something you thought about while you were writing, or is that yeah. something you developed after the fact?
3: Um, we, I, we did think about it a lot. Um, just to, you know, uh, we did work on the actual story together, and then I wrote the screenplay. So I really did have to um, think about, you know, because we had all these you know, wonderful ideas, and then you have to think about how can we actually execute um, this. And so that became very much the conversation with my cinematographer, Jordan Parrott, um, you know, was looking at religious paintings, thinking about, you know, how can we sort of embody um, a parable, you know, a living parable. And also because it's, you know, a fairly straightforward story, you know, of good and evil Mm -hmm. um it was important i felt to kind of give it the feeling of a western you know where where you kind of know where you know that good is going to win out in the end um but you do want to feel like good is really challenged
0: and you bring that out so beautifully and as i as i said arturo the one scene that sticks with me even as i sit here now talking to you is in the church, the pastor with all the children, this Mm -hmm. beautiful, so well-lit, so beautifully lit, so we subconsciously, we get the whole concept of good. But then Mm -hmm. asking the children, where do you see yourself? And the darkness that comes out of them, that they'll be joining gangs, they'll be dead by the time they're 12, things like that just... It just, you have to stop in your tracks when you see a film like this and you experience emotion like that on screen. Well, thank
3: you. I, I really, you know, Arturo is an amazing producer and a wonderful, um, I think he has a wonderful sense of story, you know, a very deep sense of story. Um, so it was a really um, Important collaboration. I don't think I've ever enjoyed collaborating with someone as much. Um, and then to really, you know, have, um, you know, just a, a great team to to execute what we were trying to, you know, to do. Um, I do think that it, it's really important to me that you have a sense of just frame giving you you know, moving from, you know, a darker place into a lighter place and then having that light threatened. So that was that was really key.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, hand in hand with your visuals and with the story, the casting here is impeccable, and mm-hmm. most notably with Frankie G. Yes. Yes, he's fantastic in it. How did you find him for the role of Luca, the gang leader?
3: It was um, a very fortunate choice of having um, our other producer. We have three producers, and and um, Courtney Andrialis, uh had a you know relationship with the casting directors that we ended up using, um, and so she was able to really you know convinced them that this was going to be um, worth their time to do. And the first list that we presented to them was very full of, you know, kind of prettier actors and sort of, you know, I, I don't want to say L.A. choices, but, you know, it's like, you know, where the gang members don't quite, they look a little too clean and happy and well-fed. Um, and so we really wanted to have a villain that felt powerful um, and also that really had, you know, um, just, you know, a gravitas. And they suggested Frankie. Um, and when I met with him, I just was really... It, he'd read the script so deeply. He really felt, you know, very strongly about the character. And he also came up with, you know, one of the key um, moments in the ending for his character. Um, so all of those things, you know, it just it came very organically. And he's an amazing talent. He really does have a Shakespearean side. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, and you also scored really big with all of the kids that you cast, yes. and most notably, I have to say it again: David Iacono, who plays Little Miguel, that boy has star quality. Yes, the camera loves him, and he. he, he uh, yeah,
3: uh, it, it, <laughs> you know we felt so sad that he had he didn't you know he didn't have much to say right and we kept trying to think, you know, can we make this, you know, what can we do? But he does such a beautiful job of conveying this whole backstory of this kid that we basically had to cut out, you know.
0: I mean, just phenomenal. But now I have to ask you, how mm. do you go from doing a film like Vampires in Venice to <laughs> doing a film like The Pastor?
3: Well, you know, finally. Vampires also had a very redeeming, uh, you know, sort of element to it, even though it was, you know, obviously, um, uh, you know, genre, strict genre.
0: Um, Vampires but, always have redeeming elements.
3: Yes. <laughs> but, you know, it was a young man's struggle um, sort of against, you know, the dark forces as well. So I thought it was interesting that, that the, you know, the next project I got to really you know, grab hold of was, you know, ends up being sort of that story also.
0: <laughs> I just, I, you just go from one thing to another. I mean...
3: <laughs> I hope so. I hope that is the trajectory now.
0: <laughs> well, now your next project, you are going to be working with Arturo again in Wolfgang yeah. Cinema with the two lives of uh, Maxi, Maxi Ka- Kaplan. Kaplan. Now, is that going to be along the Wolfgang Cinema, the the inspirational... Yeah, yeah, style least, of film. Uh, I think
3: that's definitely an inspirational story. And, um, you know, it's based on a short story. Um, and, we, you know, both of us, when we read the story, thought, you know, this feels almost like, like it could be true, like it's a documentary story. Um, and I think there's definitely a redemptive, um, you know, theme that runs through it because the main character really loses everything but then kind of gains more than he ever could have if he'd stayed in the lifestyle and, and you know, the, the surroundings that he was sort of born into.
0: Is that where you see your, yourself go, going now, the trajectory as a storyteller, as a filmmaker, for, with these films that have redemptive value, that are mm-hmm. character studies with underdogs and overcoming, you know, self or others in order to become a better person?
3: I do. I thank you for asking the question because I think that um, there's enough, you know, there's enough of the gritty, dark, you know, um, irredeemable side out there. And believe me, I have enjoyed, you know, many (laughs) movies, You know that had a really dark sort of, you know, um, despair almost at the end. But I just feel like I personally can't um, tell those kind of stories. I feel like I, I just uh, at this point in the way the world is, the way you know everything's pointing um, in the direction of trying to bring people more hope and more sense of optimism. Um, and also, you know, explore difficult questions, you know, and show that it's not easy. It's not easy to be happy. You know, it's not easy to care about other people, that it's a struggle. And those struggles can be really um challenging and dramatic, you know
0: well, unfortunately, our time today is actually up. I'm getting the evil stare from Brian in the booth. I bet you are. oh my God. <laughs> will you please will you please come back on the show again?
3: Oh, absolutely,
0: with pleasure. You know, and we can do a much longer chat. I I would so love that.
3: That would be great, and I really appreciate you inviting me. And this is a great
0: show. Thank you so much, Deborah. and thank you. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Excellent. Okay, bye-bye. And that's it for today, folks. Behind the Lens, I told you it was jam-packed. We were packed. Next week, Oscar-nominated costuming, and Susan Klassen is going to be joining me live, and we're going to talk Edith Head.